the mission begins. That's what we're thinking about today. And to have a real impact on the world. We have been thinking in the book of Acts how we can be involved in turning the world upside down as the apostles were described as doing all those years ago. And to be a church and to be believers who are involved in really having an impact on society, there are times when we have to start something new. Starting something new, whether as a church or as individuals, can be very exciting. But also, it can be very challenging and even frightening. Walking on new ground can have all those emotions going with it. And this is true here for Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark as they engage of this new work of sharing the gospel on these missionary journeys. And these missionary journeys would have an impact, I think, far beyond what Paul ever could have imagined. And so, when we take wee steps, as we see the beginning of these wee steps with Paul today, we never know how the Lord can use us. And the first thing we see here is blessing and challenge in Cyprus in verses 4 to 12. They travel throughout Cyprus, sharing the message of Jesus. Now, Cyprus is a fairly large island, so they the wouldn't have done that just in a few days. So, the this was a prolonged period of evangelism on this island. And their ministry in Cyprus reached a climax when they meet the, the proconsul, which is another name for the governor, Sergius Paulus. And Sergius Paulus, he was interested in hearing the Word of God. But here we have Elymas, who was a false prophet and a magician from a Jewish background. He sought to work against the ministry of Paul and his companions, and particularly to prevent the proconsul from coming to faith. And we always need to remember that in the work of the gospel, and particularly in a new work, we will always face opposition. Sometimes it's unintentional, sort of the opposition, but at other times it is very, very deliberate. Now, Paul has great courage here, and he, he faces down Elymas with very direct and strong language there in verse 10. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? There's no gray in what Paul is saying here. And for those who hinder people from receiving the gospel, condemnation has to be leveled at them. Uh, this reminds me of the words of Jesus in Mark 9 and 42. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung round his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And this is an amazing challenge for all of us about the influence our lives will have on others. We always need to be aware of what sort of witness our, our words, our attitudes, our actions, what sort of impact they have on others. We're, if we're Christians, we are witnesses for Christ, and we have to ask ourselves if whether we're being a good or a bad witness for Christ. And as Christians, we need to realize in being a witness that everything matters. Everything counts. We must always be alert. You think of 
use an illustration from football, those great managers in football, the thing that often is said about them, they were, they really looked at things down to the very last detail. Everything mattered. Everything counted. And if we're going to be witnesses for Christ, everything matters. Everything counts. I remember as a young Christian, it was a struggle for me because I read in the Bible about a Christian and the way a Christian should live. And then I looked around and so many who professed to be Christians, and there seemed to be such a gap between how they were living and what the Bible taught. We need to be witnesses, particularly for the younger generation, witnesses that are honorable and effective in drawing people to Christ and not hindering them. Elymas's his attempts to hinder the gospel here fails. If you look at verse 12, and we see that indeed the proconsul, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was amazed at what happened in the blinding of this man, but he was astonished at the Word of God. The power of God was moving in his life. He could see the power of God in his Word, and he came to faith. And you know, when we face opposition in the Christian work, particularly in evangelism, let's remember that if we are faithful, and even if we sow in tears, in the end, by God's grace, a harvest will be brought in. So there we see blessing and challenge in Cyprus. Secondly, we see God's plan proclaimed in Antioch. And as Paul traveled on to Antioch, we have here a record of one of his sermons. And it's one of the, the longest records of the content of his preaching that we have in the New Testament. And we'll break it up to see what were the essentials of good, faithful, biblical preaching. What we see here was God's plan at work. And first of all, God's plan in the Old Testament from verses 16 to 23 in the message he shared there. Paul, he begins there in verse 16, speaking about the formation of the nation of Israel in Egypt in those days of trial. He speaks of the 40 years in the wilderness, the conquest into the promised land. He then speaks of them being ruled by judges of whom Samuel, he says, was the last. And then he speaks of the request for a king, which was fulfilled in Saul. The focus then turns to David the man described here as being after God's own heart. And you know, Paul had a real plan in this. Why was he talking about the Old Testament? Why was he talking about God's plan there for Israel? Well, he had one destination in mind, and we see it there in verse 23. Speaking of David, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior Jesus as he promised. So, God's Old Testament plan, it would be fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, the promised Savior. And Paul is basically teaching that all of world history was leading up to this crucial point in the plan of God with the coming of His dear Son into the world to bring salvation. God's plan in the Old Testament. And then, secondly, God's plan through John in verses 24 and 25. John the Baptist was seen as the greatest of all the prophets. His ministry focused first on the need of 
repentance. Look there, verse 24. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. This repentance was a, a turning away from sin, a turning back to the Lord with faith and obedience. John's ministry in calling for repentance, though, was in preparation. It was in preparation for the coming of another. Look what he says in verse 25. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet, whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Even Jesus said of John was the greatest of all men. But John is saying there's one coming after me. I am not even fit to do the, the lowest of menial tasks for this person. He is far, far greater than me. John's ministry was part of God's plan that would find fulfillment where? In the coming of Jesus. The Old Testament would find its fulfillment in Jesus. John the Baptist's ministry would find its fulfillment in Jesus. And then we have, thirdly, God's plan through the Jewish leaders in verse 26 to 29. The Jewish leaders were not like John the Baptist. They hated Jesus. They rejected Jesus. They wanted Him dead. But in even all that they did, God's plan was still being fulfilled. Look, verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. They fulfilled the Scriptures, particularly Scriptures like Psalm 2, by conspiring against the Lord's Messiah, His anointed one, Jesus Christ. What the Jewish leaders did was so wrong. Look at verse 28. He says, And though they found in him no guilty worth of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. So what they were doing wasn't right. They were condemning an innocent man. But even as they did that, God's plan was being worked out. Verse 29. And when they'd carried out all that was written of him, written where? In the Word of God. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. And so, these religious leaders who hated Jesus, God's plan for them and through them was fulfilled in the death of Jesus. Again, the plan leads to Jesus. And then we have, fourthly, God's plan in the resurrection in verse 30 on. In verse 30, we read, but God raised him from the dead. And Paul goes on and he quotes, we don't have time to look at this in detail, he quotes from two Psalms, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, he quotes from Habakkuk to show that the resurrection proves one crucial thing, that Jesus is who he said he was. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. Paul's conclusion about the resurrection is that Jesus is the one who brings forgiveness. Look at verse 37. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And so what Paul is teaching here is the resurrection proves that Jesus is your only hope. Jesus is the only one who can bring forgiveness from sin. Jesus can do for you, and remember, he was speaking to a lot of Jewish people. Jesus can do for you that which the law couldn't do. You couldn't perfectly keep the law. You couldn't get right with God by doing your best. Your religion, your good works will not get you to God, but this Jesus does it for you. The resurrection proves how God's plan finds fulfillment in Jesus. So the Old Testament, John the Baptist, the Jewish leaders' actions, and the resurrection all point to God's plan finding fulfillment in Jesus. Do you understand that? Do you realize that your only hope in life and eternity is not in church, is not in religion, is not in anything you do? It is Christ alone. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. I'm just thinking of some of the, the stories coming out of Ukraine and some of the stories among the work among the refugees by some of the churches. And they've said this, you know, these people in a sense, have lost everything. But we hope that they'll understand if they come to know Jesus, they've come to gain everything. And then thirdly, we look at the different responses in Antioch from verse 42 to 52. We see, first of all, a, an eagerness in the Word. There in verse 42, the people are begging that they will be taught some more, uh, in verse 43, the people, after they left the synagogue that first Sabbath, they, they keep coming with Paul and Barnabas. They don't want to let them go. There's, there's something magnetic about the teaching of the Scripture that they're just drawn to, and the, they have hunger, and they want more of it. And then in verse 44, almost the whole city gathers the following Sabbath. Why? Because in that intervening week, these people who had heard what Paul had taught, they talk about it, they're excited about it, and it has this ripple effect, so near the whole city is there to hear the message of the Word of God. A hunger for the Word is a real sign of God's Spirit working in and among people. And it's the church's task, and it's particularly the minister's task, but others as well, to, to deliver that Word. In a sense, that's the greatest gift that we can give to the world around us. It's the Word of God because it's there. They find Jesus, and we mustn't be distracted. I remember years ago a dear Christian lady saying to me about a minister. You know, William, he was very good at funerals at summing people up, but he never brought us the Word. What a terrible, terrible indictment. That man will have a lot to answer for in the day of judgment. We mustn't be distracted. Brookside, you have such a tremendous tradition here 
of many, many decades of faithful teaching of God's Word. Don't take that just for granted. Don't be casual about that. Robert Murray McShane spoke about the people that he ministered to in Dundee, and he said they're like horses which had so much hay in the rack above them that they started to pull it down and to trample it into the ground and just use it as bedding. And he said that's the way some of his people were there. They had the word for so long that they treated it very lightly. Never treat the word lightly. It's so special because it brings us to Jesus. So we have this eagerness for the word. But then secondly, we see in verse 45, we have jealousy by the religious. And the Jews, it's mentioned here, it probably means the, the Jewish leaders. They were jealous because these preachers who have come in were so popular among the people and were having an impact and an influence that they never had themselves, and they weren't standing for it. They seek to stir the people up against Paul and Barnabas. We see the very opposite attitude that these people had. Later on, we see the very opposite attitude in Paul. Writing to the Philippians, and, and Paul could have felt sorry for himself because he, he's in prison at the States. And he says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? In other words, what should my attitude be? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. We have to be so careful between churches and even within a church that we don't have rivalry. How do you avoid that? How do you have the attitude that Paul displays here? He had a kingdom mindset. It wasn't about building his own kingdom. It was about building the kingdom of Christ, his love for Christ, his desire for people to know Christ. That was overriding everything else. So, even though these boys were preaching with wrong motives, Christ was preached. And for that, Paul rejoiced. So, we have this jealousy, and then thirdly, we have joy among the outcasts. Paul explains how the, the gospel of salvation, it had to go to the Jews first, but as these Jews were rejecting it, it would go to the Gentiles. And remember how Jews thought of the Gentiles. They described them as dogs, as total outcasts. But the response of the Gentiles here in verse 48 is wonderful. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Why did the Gentiles believe? Well, they'd heard the Word of God. They heard that message. But there was another reason why they believed. It was God's plan. These people had been chosen for salvation even before the world was formed. And I know some people don't like that idea. But if it wasn't for this truth, no one would ever be saved. Because the human heart, 
is so hard, we could hear the message of Christ for a thousand years, and we would never come to Jesus because of the state of our dead and sinful hearts. And the only reason why anyone becomes a Christian is God chooses them for salvation, Jesus dies for them, and the Holy Spirit comes and changes their heart, causing them to embrace Christ in faith and repentance. It's all of God. You know, that's what kept Paul and Barnabas going. Even when they're facing opposition from these Jews, they're kept going because they know God has a plan. God has a plan to save people. And as they share the gospel, God will bring His people in. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. How wonderful that is. And the final response we see here then is opposition by the high and mighty. Look there at verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. They stir up the, the high and mighty. People of influence in society are used to chase these men out. But notice what they do in verse 51. They shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. I don't think you might just realize just what a significant act that was. When a Jew left Israel and went to a Gentile nation, when they came back to the border of Israel, they shook the dust off their feet. They weren't bringing that dirty Gentile dust into Israel, the home of God's own people. And by Paul and Barnabas shaking the dust off their feet, they were saying to these Jewish people, you are like unbelieving Gentiles. You are not the people of God because you are rejecting Jesus Christ, the Savior. Look at verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You see, in the work of the gospel, and you'll experience this in your workplace, in your school, it will not always be easy. There will be opposition, and we live in days when that opposition seems to get more and more hostile. There will be times when it will be really difficult. How do you keep going? Well, God has a plan to save people, and God's Holy Spirit lives in you. And even as you suffer for the sake of the gospel, those are often the days when the Spirit just so encourages you. You belong to the Lord. He is with you. Just keep going on. Don't give up because we have an amazing message to share. Let us pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. And Father, just encourage us in regards to the gospel for people who are not saved here today, who have never come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord, who haven't been born again. Father, encourage them to realize that Christ is the answer to their every need, that He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And Father, for those of us who have come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord, oh, Father, 
would you lead us on? Would you keep us close with you? Would you, Father, just help us to be faithful to Christ in how we live and the witness what we display and in how we speak to others for the Savior. Encourage us, Lord. Oh, Father, we will go into our workplace, our schools, our universities, among family and friends, Father, tomorrow. And so many of them, Father, are dead in their sin and facing your judgment. Oh, Father, help us to be light in the darkness with great humility, with great love, with great tenderness, but also, Father, with the needed direction. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.